12 leaders brought these gifts. Each leader brought one silver plate that weighed about three and a quarter pounds. Each leader brought one silver bowl that weighed about one and three quarter pounds. Both of these gifts were weighed by the official measure. The bowl and the plate were each filled with fine flour mixed with oil. This was to be used as a grain offering. Each leader also brought a large gold spoon that weighed about four ounces. The spoon was filled with incense. Each leader also brought one young bull, one ram, and one male lamb a year old. These animals were for a burnt offering. Each leader also brought one male goat to be used as a sin offering. Each leader brought two cattle, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. All of them were sacrificed for a fellowship offering. On the first day, the leader of the tribe of Judah, Nashon, son of Amminadab, brought his gifts. On the second day, the leader of the tribe of Issachar, Nethanel, son of Zuar, brought his gifts. On the third day, the leader of the tribe of Zebulun, Eliab, son of Helon, brought his gifts. On the fourth day, the leader of the tribe of Reuben, Elazur, son of Shedeur, brought his gifts. On the fifth day, the leader of the tribe of Simeon, Shalumiel, son of Zerushadai, brought his gifts. On the sixth day, the leader of the tribe of Gad, Eliasaph, son of Deuel, brought his gifts. On the seventh day, the leader of the tribe of Ephraim, Elishama, son of Amahud, brought his gifts. On the eighth day, the leader of the tribe of Manasseh, Gamaliel, son of Pedajur, brought his gifts. On the ninth day, the leader of the tribe of Benjamin, Abaddon, son of Gideoni, brought his gifts. On the tenth day, the leader of the tribe of Dan, Ahiazur, son of Amishadai, brought his gifts. On the eleventh day, the leader of the tribe of Asher, Pagael, son of Okron, brought his gifts. On the twelfth day, the leader of the tribe of Naphtali, Ahira, son of Enon, brought his gifts. So all these things were the gifts from the leaders of the Israelites. They brought them during the time that Moses dedicated the altar by anointing it. They brought 12 silver plates, 12 silver bowls, and 12 gold spoons. Each silver plate weighed about three and a quarter pounds, and each bowl weighed about one and three quarter pounds. The silver plates and the silver bowls together all weighed about 60 pounds, using the official measure. The 12 gold spoons filled with incense weighed four ounces each, using the official measure. The 12 gold spoons altogether weighed about three pounds. The total number of animals for the burnt offering was 12 bulls, 12 rams, and 12 one-year-old male lambs. There were also the grain offerings that must be given with these offerings, and there were 12 male goats to be used for a sin offering. The leaders also gave animals to be killed and used as a fellowship offering. The total number of these animals was 24 bulls, 60 rams, 60 male goats, and 61-year-old male lambs. In this way, they dedicated the altar after Moses anointed it. When Moses went into the meeting tent to speak to the Lord, he heard the Lord's voice speaking to him. The voice was coming from the area between the two cherub angels on the mercy cover on top of the box of the agreement. In this way, the Lord spoke to Moses. This is the word of the Lord.
On Thursday, we had uh, a chapel service here uh, at Valley Christian School. Every, well, actually, every Thursday we have a chapel service for, for the middle school at Valley Christian School. Uh, but this past Thursday was, was Pastor's Day. Um, I don't know if you know it, but our school serves uh, children from about 50 different churches. Um, and we like to bring the pastors out once a year uh, so they can see the facility, so that they can meet the teachers, and uh, so that we can honor them. And so uh, we did that this past Thursday. Now, normally I preach uh, in middle school chapel, but this week I didn't. Harrison, would you stand up? I want you to see our preacher uh, from our service. Harrison, Harrison James did this unbelievable job of preaching. Thank you, Harrison. You can, uh, uh, I think uh, Dr. Foster posted it uh, on, on, uh, on Facebook, which is a social media for old people. Uh, on Facebook... Uh, I don't know if it made it to Instagram or those other young people uh, things, but uh, he did a really, really good job. It was, it was an exhortation uh, for the community that gathered there. Um, you and I need to talk about it, okay? I'm serious, young man. That was a, that was a very important word you brought, and, and you, spoke the, you spoke the word of God to the people of God that day. Thanks be to God. So the book of Numbers which we're working our way through little by little. The book of Numbers is, in fact, about us. The book of Numbers is about the people of God. The book of Numbers is about our journey from slavery into freedom. It's about the pilgrimage of the Christian life. It's about how God begins to shape a people for himself. It's, how, uh, it's a story about how God forms the character of the people that he's called into a relationship with himself. Now, the book of Numbers is the fourth book uh, of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Now, you remember that back in Exodus, back in the second book of the Torah, we saw God rescue his people out of Egypt. We saw God bring the children of Israel out into the Sinai wilderness. We saw God give the children of Israel his law at Mount Sinai. And we also saw the people of God begin to grumble and begin to complain. And some of them wanted to go back to Egypt because, well, it was slavery, but at least we had, you know, onions and we had melons and we had nice things to eat back there. God, of course, does not accede to this desire to return to their former slavery, and he keeps them there in the wilderness. And the story of their journey in the wilderness is the story of the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, we have the story of the 40-year journey across the wilderness, the journey from Egypt to the promised land. God has a lot of work that he has to do on these stubborn and stiff-necked people before they're ready to enter the promised land. In fact, it's so much work, it's going to take a whole lifetime. This is a story about us. This is a story about our lives. This is a story about our lives as people who've been rescued out of the world, who've been rescued from sin and death. We've been redeemed, but God still has work to do on us. 
I'm 61 years old, but I am not yet sanctified. I'm not yet fully self-controlled. I have lessons to learn. I'm 61 years old, but I've not yet become wise. I'm not yet fully committed to even doing the things that I know that God wants me to do. My experience of myself, and maybe it's your experience of yourself, is that the problem is not so much in my head. The problem is not in my intellect. I know what God wants. The problem is in my heart. I know what God wants, but I also know what I want to do. There are things that I know that God wants from me and from my life, and yet my life is not conformed to the will of God. God is still working on me. He does this as a process during the course of our lives. God redeems us and then he sets us on a journey and he's getting us ready to live with him forever face to face. In Numbers chapter 1, we saw the census of the people. They take the census so they know how many soldiers they have when the time comes that they have to enter battle. In Numbers chapter 2, we see God's arrangement of the camp. I mean, remember, there's a million of these people. They're living in tents out there in the wilderness. God sets them up in a certain way. Each tribe has its own place. And at the center of the camp, in the center of the nation, is the tabernacle where God is worshipped and where the word of God is actually present. In Numbers chapter 3 and number 4, we saw God begin to arrange uh, the work and the services of the Levites. These are the priests and the people who have responsibility uh, for conducting the worship in the tabernacle. And in Numbers chapter 5, we saw how God established a system to deal with their sin and their fallenness. Okay, these Israelites, they're God's people, but they continue to sin. The Israelites are God's people, but they need to deal with the sin day by day. They are God's people, but God continues to have to uh, prepare them for the resurrection of their bodies. So here's the deal. If you're born again, I'm happy for you. You're bound for heaven. Your sins are forgiven. Your body one day will be raised from the dead. But we still, who are born again, we still need a plan and a process and a procedure for dealing with the sins that we continue to commit day by day. While you are a Christian, after you've been converted, If you are not prepared for dealing with the ongoing sins in your life, if you don't have a plan for the besetting sins in your life, your life will be a disappointment. Your faith will land into a crisis and you'll ask yourself, why aren't things turning out the way that I planned? God's children, even though they've been rescued supernaturally out of Egypt, God's children, even though they've been redeemed, God's children still need a plan for dealing with the ongoing sins in their lives, and that's what we see in Numbers chapter 5. In Numbers chapter 6, which we read last week, God presents the Nazarite vow, which is a special opportunity for total dedication 
to the Lord. There may be times in the life of God's people, there may be time uh, during our pilgrimage when it is the right thing for us to do to lay aside all of the normal things in our lives, to lay aside all the ordinary things in our lives and commit all that we have and all that we are to God for a certain season. Our lives are, of course, not ours own, our own anyway, and so there is this opportunity in the Nazarite vow uh, in a special way for a certain period of time to dedicate it all to God, and that we read about in Numbers chapter 6. By the way, when I was reading through Numbers chapter 6, I was also thinking about these reports of revival that we've been hearing. Uh, I, I guess it started at Asbury uh, University in Kentucky, uh, but uh, the revivals are popping up in other places uh, uh, right now. I think these revivals are the result of Christians wanting to have a deeper commitment to God. These are born-again people who want to lay their whole lives before God. These are Christians who are wanting to see Jesus in some larger way in their life. I think it's a good instinct. I think it's a good outpouring that's happening. Revival happens when we bring our past and our sin to God in heartfelt and honest confession. Revival happens when we bring our present, our love, our desires to God in acts of worship. Revival happens when we bring our future, our hopes to God in vows of commitment. There's nothing magical about a Christian revival, if we put our whole lives in the hand of God, revival will happen every time. God will meet us in our commitment. The reality is, is that most of the time we're holding ourselves back. Most of the time we are only giving God a part of who we are. We give God a little bit, but then we reserve the rest for ourselves. We allow God to have one room in our lives, but we rule the rest of the house. We let God, I don't know, be a useful member of our staff, but we don't let him be the boss who's running the whole thing. I think some of us wonder why God doesn't show up in our lives in a bigger way, and then at the same time, we're guilty of being small and stingy with the space that we do give to God in our lives. We hold back, we're cautious, we're reserved, and then we're disappointed when God is so distant. We withhold ourselves from God and then wonder why we get so little from God. There's nothing magical about a revival. You don't have to go to Kentucky to experience a revival if we commit ourselves to God, we will see a spiritual awakening in our lives. It's automatic. The problem is, is that we're so often afraid to commit. The problem is, is that we're not willing to put it all on the line. We want a revival, but we don't want to pay the ticket price for the revival. Well, of course, the price is your whole life. 
laying down your life so that God will lift you up. That's the formula for revival. Psalm 37.5 puts it this way, commit everything that you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. I am happy that there is this longing for revival in our country. Actually, I think this revival is overdue. I'm happy to see it, this longing for God. This longing for God is a, is a, is a healthy thing. When we find the things of this world unsatisfying, that's good. When political power no longer satisfies our hearts, that's good. When our prosperity and our security are not enough, that's good. When endless entertainment and distraction begin to feel empty, that's good. Because only then do we turn to God. And only God can deeply satisfy us. We were made for God, and we do not rest until we rest in God. And I don't want to talk about this too much now, but I might want to talk about it at another time. But I do think that the American church in this moment is waking up from a terrible, idolatrous hangover. I think we've got a massive hangover in the evangelical church. We, the church, have been drunk with the wine of the world for too long. We have grabbed at power and security that we think that the world and politics can give us, and we're waking up from that lie. And our heads are pounding, and our stomachs are hungry for something deeper and richer. And I pray that God will revive his church in this country. I pray that our hearts will be filled with a longing for the presence of Jesus. I pray that we will be filled with contrition and humility. I pray that our love for this world and the things of this world will be replaced by a love of the things of God and the love of the world to come. Revival comes when we commit ourselves and our ways to God, we don't need a special preacher. We don't need signs and wonders. What we need is ordinary commitment. And the Nazarite vow was an opportunity for the children of Israel for a season to commit themselves in a special way to God's service. No one was required to take the Nazarite vow. It wasn't part of the law of God, but it was an opportunity for the children of Israel that they could grab if they wanted a closer walk with God, if they wanted God's special favor. Now, I mentioned this last week. We as Christians should keep open the possibility of such a kind of Nazarite vow in our own lives. That's not just for the Old Testament saints. Okay, there were examples of the Nazarite vow in the New Testament. It is something that is permissible for Christians to do. So this week we come to chapter 7, which is about special gifts that the 12 tribes of Israel offered to the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle's there in the center of their camp. There's about a million of these people. They're out there uh, in the desert and they've got like a refugee tent city out there and it's been organized according to this certain grid and in the middle of the grid is there the tabernacle. And here we have the scene uh, of, of the dedication of special gifts to the tabernacle. The tabernacle's complete. Okay, It's been built. 
Everything has been set up. It's all ready to go. The priests have been uh, given their instructions about how to do their job. They've been specially consecrated. They've been ordained. They're ready to serve. Moses has dedicated the whole thing. And then in chapter 7, we have this litany of gifts that the 12 tribes offer. Thank you, Jordan, by the way, for reading that again. This I... I am loving having Jordan uh, uh, do this reading for me. Normally I do the second reading, but uh, because numbers, well, first of all, it's long, and you're probably sick of hearing my voice anyway, so we'll have someone else talk for a while. And then there are all these Hebrew names, which are just like miserable. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. In this litany, we see two, two categories. First, there... Uh, are these six covered wagons? I'm thinking Conestoga wagons, right? Drawn by two oxen each, okay? So there are six wagons and 12 oxen. These are gonna be used for transporting the tabernacle and all of its furniture. Remember, the Israelites are only in this spot for a certain amount of time. They're gonna move. At some point, you know, there's a pillar of fire and a pill, uh, uh, by, by night and a, a pillar of cloud by day, and God will, will pick up and he'll move, and, he'll, and all the Israelites will follow him, and so they're going to have to pack all this stuff up. And so they got these 12 wagons to haul all this stuff. That's the first set of gifts. The second set of gifts are gold and silver plates and bowls and spoons and these are, I don't know, like the kitchen equipment that's needed for making the sacrifices. And there's also fine flour mixed with oil for the grain offering. And there's incense that's burned in the tabernacle. And then there are animals, lots of animals, cattle and goats and sheep. All of these animals are sacrifices for, uh, to be used in the tabernacle. Chapter 7 is about giving to God and about giving to the work of God's tabernacle. Okay, the tabernacle's been established, and now there is this outpouring of gifts to the tabernacle to help it do what the tabernacle needs to do. And this morning I want to lift up four teachings that we have from this passage. Lesson number one. The kind of giving that we have in chapter 7 is not the same as tithing. Okay, Tithing is the biblical principle that says we set aside in an intentional way a certain percentage of our income for the work of the Lord. We dedicate that income to God. The tithe is required by God's law. It is a kind of holy tax. The tithe is not ours. It belongs to God. If we don't tithe, in fact, we're stealing from God. It's the same way that we pay our taxes, by the way. When you pay your taxes, it's sort of a way of saying, you know, I belong to this country. I support the work of this nation. I contribute to the health of my community. Paying your taxes is a sign of belonging to something greater and more important to yourself. And people who cheat on their taxes are just selfish. People who cheat on their taxes say, oh, someone else can pay my share of the public services. People who cheat on their taxes, I say, are traitors to their community and to their nation. People who cheat on their taxes are thieves stealing from their neighbors. The same is true of the tithe. 
The tithe belongs to God, it doesn't belong to us, and the tithe is our share, our contribution to the work of the church. We love the church, we benefit from the church, we enjoy the services of the church, but all of that costs money, and saying to ourselves, someone else will pay for that, well, that's just selfish. I actually like tithing. I love putting uh, my check uh, in the plate when one of the uh, ushers, tall or small, comes past, Uh, For me, it's a sign that I am part of what God is doing in this place. For me, it's a sign that uh, everything that I have has come from God. For me, it's a sign that God chose me to be part of the work that he's doing in this neighborhood, in the world. And I like being part of what God is doing because God is doing big things and he does those through the tithe. But the offerings in Numbers chapter 7 are not tithes. These are not required by the law of God. These offerings are free will uh, gifts. The people just want to give these gifts to God, and they give them joyfully. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. I think God was very happy with the gifts that came out in Numbers chapter 7. Now, I don't know if you know it, but the land that we are sitting on, standing on this morning is land that we did not buy. You didn't buy this land. And you're sitting in a sanctuary that you did not build. And I'm standing on a chancel that I did not purchase. Saints before us provided what we are using today. Rebecca Snowden, a maiden lady who lived uh, up, up the street a little piece, gave the money to buy this parcel of land. Casper Fetter, whose name is on that window back there, a local businessman, the first elder of this church, gave the money to build the original sanctuary, which those of you who are in the back are sitting in. Grace Beale, whose father made money as a real estate developer in Huntington Valley, gave the money to rebuild this chancel on which I'm standing. Around this building, on stained glasses, on stained glass windows, and on brass plaques, and in a book that's over there in what is called a vitrine, are names of people, the saints of the past, who gave free will offerings to the tabernacle. It's not their tithe that's recorded there, it's their free will offering, their contribution to the work of this beautiful place out of the fullness of their heart because they loved God and because they loved church in each generation there have been people who stood up and said here's my gift this is above and beyond my tithe lesson number one what we're talking about here is not tithing lesson number two these free will offerings were made for operational and infrastructure projects kind of boring not very sexy the wagons and the oxen needed to move the tabernacle from place to place they're nomadic people remember they don't build permanent structures like this church and so the wagons and the oxen are sort of like this building they are the investment that's required for to make the whole thing possible The gold and the silver plates and the bowls and the spoons were the equipment needed for the normal operation of the tabernacle worship. They are the equivalent of our sound system, of our lighting system, of our ventilation system. Kind of boring, not very sexy. 
but really essential. The sacrifices and the offerings of the tabernacle could not happen without those things being in place. They were needed. And so people gave them out of their own free will. The flour and the incense and the animals were the consumable part of public worship. They were the consumable part of what is involved in running a church. They were the electricity and the gas and the water of running the church. A steady supply is what you need, and you only notice those things when you don't have them. And these people gave those things as their free will offering. That's number two. Number three, all of the gifts were made under the supervision of the Levites. All of the free will gifts were given under the supervision of the Levites who were the ones who were divinely responsible for running the tabernacle. In other words, the people gave to the tabernacle the things that the Levites needed to do their work in the tabernacle. This is an important point because sometimes people want to control what happens in a church through their gifts. I will give this gift to the church, but only if they do things my way. Well, of course, that's not a gift to the church at all. That's a gift to yourself. Let me give you a very simple example. Shortly after I arrived at this church, there was an individual uh, who was a member of the choir who offered to pay for the choir music for the coming year. Now, we spend hundreds of dollars every year uh, buying choir music, and this individual wanted to pay for the year's budget of choir music, but her stipulation was is that she got to choose it. Well, we had to reject that gift. Because that's not a gift to the church. It's a gift to the giver. It's a gift of control over the operation of the church, which properly belongs in other hands. But you could see why a church would be tempted by a gift like that. It's kind of like selling a naming rights to the stadium. Buy the music and you get to choose what the choir is going to sing. How about we have a deal where for a hundred bucks you get to choose what hymn we sing this Sunday. We sing about 200 hymns in the course of a year, and let's see, that would bring us about $20,000 a year. Or we could auction them off to the highest bidder. Maybe we could even make more money that way. You see why that doesn't, that we can't do things that way. The gifts that were given to the tabernacle were given under the supervision of the Levites who had been appointed by God to run the tabernacle. Our gifts to the church are under the supervision of the session, which is the leadership of the church, and those gifts cannot be uh, accepted um, if they are a means of controlling uh, the work of the church. Number four, the final point is, is that the gifts that were given uh, in Numbers chapter 7, were made out of the abundance of the riches that God had given God's people. Remember, these people are living in the desert. They don't have farms. They don't have any means of creating new wealth. The money they have, in fact, is money that they took from the Egyptians. Okay, or let's put it this way, it's money that God gave them through the hands of the Egyptians. You remember that uh, just prior to their exodus, there are the, tw- there are the plagues 
the, 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 uh, the ten plagues uh, in Egypt, and, you know, by the time the plagues come to the end, the Egyptians are like just thrilled to get the Israelites out of here. And so God instructs them to ask the, Israel, uh, to, to ask the Egyptians for silver and gold and clothing on their way out. We read in Exodus 12, 35 and 36, they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever it is they asked for. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians, okay? Call it plunder, call it payment for back wages that they should have gotten as slaves. The point is, is that the Israelites took wealth uh, out of Egypt. It was given to them by God, and they used this wealth for the equipping of the tabernacle. It's above and beyond their tithe. These gifts were given out of love for God and love for the house of God. Now, you and I, we live and we worship in this comfortable uh, and beautiful building because of the gifts of the saints who went before us. And in each generation, there are new additions to the work of the Lord in this place. Right now, the administration board is hard at work uh, planning a renovation of our barn so that it can be used as a classroom and as a meeting space. That work is going to be paid for entirely by gifts from the Ungerman family given in memory and in honor of Fred Ungerman who served this church for many, many decades. In each generation, there are those who rise up and out of gratitude, take some of their wealth uh, and they give it to the equipping and to the beautifying of the house and the, uh, of the house of the Lord. It's not their tithe. It's something above their tithe. It's something that has happened in every generation in the past and it will continue to happen in our time. It will be done above and beyond the tithe. It will be done freely. It will be done to the glory of God. And it will be done under the supervision of the constituted authority of this session. And we will enjoy the benefits. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and we adore you. And we love the way that you provide for and take care of your people. We thank you for this witness uh, from ancient times how your tabernacle was beautified and equipped uh, by the people who gave above and beyond uh, what you had commanded them to give. Lord, I pray that uh, you would give us the wealth that we need in order to give it away to your glory. We pray that in all that we do and in all that we say that we would bring you honor and glory because you alone